book of Lamentations, chapter 4. Lamentations, chapter 4. I'll give you a moment to turn there. In education, we learn by something that's called the common topics, definition, circumstance, relationship, testimony. One of them is comparison. To compare things is a means by which we learn. We're educated. We're even empowered when we are able to compare one thing to another and understand something because of a comparison. That's what's going on in Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations 4 is being compared with life before God allowed Babylon to punish Jerusalem, before the God's wrath was poured out on his own people because of their obstinance over a long period of time. The, the Bible here is making comparison from Jeremiah, the longest book of the Bible, to Lamentation, one of the shortest books of the Bible. And the comparison helps us to learn important lessons, even important lessons for us today. That's the purpose of having the Bible, so we can make application today. And so comparisons will abound today to help us understand how to, understand how to apply Lamentations 4. Michael Card wrote about Jeremiah as he wrote Lamentations in his book, A Sacred Sorrow. Michael Card wrote A Sacred Sorrow. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. And here's what Michael Card wrote in his wonderful little book. To the west of Jerusalem, there lies a rocky hill just outside the Damascus Gate. In the face of that hill is a cave that from ancient times was called the Grotto of Jeremiah. It is said that after Nebuchadnezzar's annihilation of the holy city, Jeremiah fled there to write his Lamentations. The sound of weeping that echoed from the cave made it clear that the destruction of Jerusalem had destroyed Jeremiah too. But how did they get there? Well, we know more about Jeremiah than any other Old Testament prophet, yet we're not even sure what his name means. Most scholars say that his name means to be cast down. He's often referred to as the weeping prophet. To be cast down seems to capture Jeremiah's life in a nutshell. He was born in the poverty-stricken village of Anathoth near 650 B.C. He lived about 80 years until 570 A.D. When he was born in that poverty-stricken village, all desert and deserted, it imitated the way his life would turn out. He was most likely a descendant of Abiathar, the treacherous priest who, in a collusion with Adonijah, tried to rob Solomon of his kingly throne. Because of Abiathar's betrayal, he was cursed, and though they were a priestly family, none of Jeremiah's kinfolk were ever permitted to minister in the newly restored Ark Shrine of David. We read about it in 1 Kings chapter 2. And so Jeremiah grew up in a barren place, 
among men who were denied their purpose in life a priestly role. Jeremiah remained single for his calling as a word giver to the people or a prophet was filled with responsibility. Jeremiah was somehow able to weather the repeated desert storms of his life and times and remain upright enough to write not only the longest prophetic book of the Bible, but one of the shortest books of the Bible, this lament that we've been reading through. Jeremiah's own people turned against him. During his prophetic ministry, as a would-be priestly figure, the majority of the five kings to whom he sought to minister the word of the Lord rejected him as well. Only the first king, Josiah, seems to have appreciated Jeremiah at all and his prophetic ministry. In fact, when Josiah is murdered, Jeremiah laments. Second Chronicles 35 has the information, and Brother Mark preached on that some weeks ago. When he is known, had he had known that the next king, Jehoahaz, would be like evil, his lament might have gone on even longer. Jehoahaz fell into idolatry and was deposed by Pharaoh Necho and taken captive to Egypt where he eventually died. In one of the most twisted scenes in the Old Testament, Jehoiakim was warming himself by a winter fire in his palace and he takes a pen knife and cruelly cuts the scroll containing Jeremiah's prophecies into little small pieces and threw them one by one into the flames. Jeremiah 36 talks about it. As if to take the word of the Lord and just burn it and throw it away. That was the reverence that the king had for the true prophetic word. At the Lord's command, Jeremiah started all over again, writing again, producing a new scroll with the aid of his able scribe Baruch, the only real friend Jeremiah seems to have ever had. In fact, the final chapter of Jeremiah's great prophecy seems to have been scribed by the faithful hand of Baruch. Jehoiakim served from 608 to 597. Things did not get better. It was a slow fade. After a brief, brief stint by the fourth king, Jehoiakim, the evilest king, Zedekiah, presided over the defeat and the ultimate downfall of Jerusalem and the destruction, ironically, of Solomon's temple, which Jeremiah was forbidden to be a priest within, 597 to 586. Zedekiah was terrible to Jeremiah. He had imprisoned him. He didn't regard his ministry as he should, but he knew he was one of the only true prophets telling the truth, and so he would still yet send for word from him. And Jeremiah's life was in peril. At one point, he was lowered into a cistern by his enemies and barely escaped. Jeremiah's work as a prophet was indeed work. It's always work to tell the truth to people. It requires effort and precision. The Lord would use Babylon to punish Israel if they didn't repent. Top to tail, they had to repent, and they didn't repent. But it wasn't for a lack of work, a lack of, of messaging. Jeremiah 1, 18 and 19 says that the Lord said to Jeremiah, I will make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Indeed, that's often how we feel whenever we speak the truth to folks that don't want to hear it. We feel as if... Everyone is against us, and to some measure, I suppose they are. The gospel is just that controversial, for it's truth that sets free, but it's truth that cuts deep. It pierces to every joint and marrow. In Jeremiah chapter 19, it explains the idolatry of Israel. Pastor Kurt read it earlier. Jeremiah chapter 7 warns the Lord's house has been misused by Israel. It says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods you've not known, and then come stand before me in this house? And call by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on with these abominations? Has the house which has been called my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? And now because you've done these things, declares the Lord, 
when I spoke to you through the prophet Jeremiah, you did not listen. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, out of all your kinsmen, just as I did the offspring of Ephraim. Notice in Jeremiah in the prophecy, the reason that they're, the way that they're sinning is by committing idolatry against the Lord their God. They're worshiping other gods. And one of the applications of worshiping a different god or different gods was they mistreated their own children. Uh, in fact, it says that there was the blood of the innocents, injustice was allowed to abound in the culture. God's people would come to the house and say, we're the delivered ones. We're these, but yet their lives didn't line up at all whatsoever with what faithfulness looked like and what a delivered person looked like. Michael Card also writes of Jeremiah and his lament in a way that I think is helpful to us. He says, Standing just behind Jeremiah in that cave that overlooked the ruined city of Jerusalem, we must read Lamentations as if it were looking over Jeremiah's shoulder as he wrote, The smoldering desolation of the once beautiful city might eerily remind us of the smoking ruins, say, of the World Trade Towers. For many in our time, it was equally imaginable that the event that first called forth Jeremiah's laments would come to pass. Perhaps we might even hope Jeremiah will give us words to voice the outrage and shock in our own world that he lamented in his. Perhaps in his writings, we might begin to understand the consequences of our own sin. We would expect a certain gut-wrenching, frantic disorganization from Jeremiah's lamentation. In fact, we find an amazing degree of literary structure. The book is composed of four acrostic poems, each verse beginning with a letter, with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and working all the way through it, Aleph to Ta, just like A to Z. And I don't mean to intimate that the World Trade Center was tit for tat, God's punishment on America. I just mean to say that's the visual that Michael Card tries to get us to look at to say that's what it looked like. Absolute destruction, complete and utter despair, only to the hundredth power because it was all of Israel's civilization. So Jeremiah, with that lengthy introduction to compare what had been with all the warnings to what now is, is now 64-year-old man. He's had 40 years of ministry over the course of five different kings, increasingly evil. And he overlooks the city that he had warned and warned and warned. His warnings are compiled in the longest book in your Bible, over 33,000 words, longer than Psalms, longer than Genesis, by word count. And he laments over this city now with a very, very short book telling what had happened. And what I want us to do today, if the Lord would be so kind, is I want us to understand the comparison between Lament and Jeremiah's life before, what was going on before the fall of Jerusalem, enough that we can apply it to us that might save us some despair and destruction in our lives. It might actually help us to know how you live on the front end when you're needing to be able to speak the truth to obstinate people that could perhaps make a difference but don't seem to be. So that's the way I want to try to approach this. It's a weighty subject, so I ask for your grace as we go about it. I hope you'll hear my heart and not just my words as we try to dive into this and understand it. Lamentations 4, as we read it, is weighty, but read in light of the comparison, we can escape impending doom, especially ultimate doom. And we're going to see that today, especially as we learn to hear the word for ourselves, speak the word to influencers, and live the word in hard times. So those will be your three points this morning after I read the text. The first one is to hear the word for yourself, that you can speak the word to influencers. 
that you can then live the word during hardship. So very simply put, hear, speak, live the word. Now let's hear Lamentations 4, and then we will break down those three points of application this morning. Lamentations 4.1. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious stones of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel. Like the ostriches in the wilderness, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The child begs, the children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on, the bone, on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come." Our pursuers were swifter than eagles, than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Indeed, a heavy passage, isn't it? Let's see if we can break it down and understand it today. To live faithfully during this time, we must first hear the word ourselves. We have to look in the mirror before we look out the window at what's going on around us. We have to Seek the Lord to expose the own idols that are hidden in our own heart, things that we've tried to keep from being exposed, knowing that in the last day all things will be laid bare before the Lord. 
So good to have them exposed now instead of hiding them for later. Far be it better to fear the day of the Lord and what can be done to your soul in eternity than to fear this day and what can be done to this body. It is true that hardship reveals our idols. Hardship causes us to take a good hard look in the mirror and to move from being afraid to face our biggest fears to actually having courage to face our fears because everything is framed through the lens of who Christ is and that great white throne judgment. So hardship, that which shakes up our lives, actually reveals the idols of our hearts. Perhaps it's like this text says, it's gold, it's money. Perhaps it's the security that income can provide or that a 401k can provide as life wanes on. Perhaps it's the security that those that wear a purple sash, those of royalty, can provide to you if you have decent leadership and a cozy, secure existence. When those things start to get shook, hardship reveals idols. It's not that we should fatalistically wish that our lives got shook. It's not right for us to wish to have civilization come crashing down. The Lord's blessing is civilization. Civilization is indeed an achievement. But when hardship comes, it reveals not just their idols, it reveals my idols. Hardship is not just for the gander, it's for the goose. It's not just for the world, it's for me. And my big fear is that if you don't continue to hear the word first, and foremost, for yourself, every single Sunday on the Lord's Day. My fear is that you will be so patently busy fixing what's going on out there that it will dry rot because of what's not getting fixed in here and, frankly, in your immediate family. I had a professor that used to say to us as seminarians, he would say, I need you to know something. Now, he said it in the most direct possible terms, but he would say, you can lose your ministry... And you can keep your marriage. But if you make an idol out of ministry to the point that you lose your marriage, you lose them both. He'd say, lose your marriage, lose your ministry too. And it was a a direct statement to us to say, you had better not dry rot your home by being so busy out here doing everything else. Now, you could obviously overdo that. You You could not do anything else and be lazy. But that's not the application here. The application here for us this morning is whatever you're busy fixing out there, realize that your first mission field and your first ministry is to your family. Preach the word to your family. Teach the word to your family. Don't exasperate your family. Ephesians says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. That still applies. Build in whatever margin it takes to know the condition of your flock and to tend it. Satan's first war zone in your life is in your home. And your first ministry and mission is in your home. It's one of the reasons that I'm so excited to meet with parents of our kindergarten through fifth grade aged children next Sunday morning right here at 9.15. If you have children that are either kindergarten through fifth grade this fall, age-wise, I'd like to meet with you and just talk about how to help your ministry in the home, how Sunday school might be able to be a positive influence on your family worship time, the things that you're working on in order to develop your own family, because we're in this together. 
Here's the thing, folks. Every one of us are facing an uphill climb every week to keep the focus where it's supposed to be. Like gravity, it pulls us away from focus at home. And some of you, you've never had the focus at home. You've always succumbed to believing that your primary job with regard to fixing stuff is out there. And you have to go work and you have to go take care of business out there. But your primary job is first to your family. And we'll talk about recovering from brokenness at the end of this sermon. But right now I have to be very specific and say, if you don't take care of the ministry at home, whatever ministry you got going on out there is also going to be undermined. You have to start there. In fact, it's important that we understand the Lord's Day as an opportunity to get equipped to be able to do these spiritual things like praying the Word and speaking the Word and singing the Word in our homes. It's very important that we do that. What Lamentations is lamenting here is loss of civilization. But it's lamenting it at its most foundational level. Look at verse 1, how the gold has grown dim. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Verse 2, the precious stones of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. They're now regarded as throwaway, you know, plasticware. It's just trash, earthen pots. It talks about the children. See in verse 3, we are now being compared to ostriches instead of jackals because the destruction of civilization followed. We weren't good to our littlest ones. We didn't give a voice to the voiceless during the writing of Jeremiah's prophecy. And now the lament is the littlest ones are really feeling the effects of it the worst. Consequences for sin has a delayed effect. And sometimes that numbs us. In fact, Satan depends on it. It numbs us to the reality that God's promises always come true and rebellion will always be squelched. So we, we get into this, this kind of anesthesia-based state as we're going through our Christian lives. And, and hardship reveals idols. It wakes us up. It, it snaps us out of it. So don't make an idol out of whatever you're doing. Put your family first. I don't ever want to be overlooking an ash heap of a city and trying to communicate with the people that I'm called to serve and say, that's what happened because nobody would listen to the Word of God. Nobody would apply it in their lives, in their homes. Everybody gave lip service to I'm being delivered, but nobody lived it. And now you've got an ash heap of a city to show for it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you know what I'm talking about all too well. Mark Vrogop wrote this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. We've been talking about it. It's, a, it's the kind of inspiration for this series we've been working on called Learning the Language of Lament. And when he preached this text, here's what he said. And it was so good, I thought I'd just share it with you so helpfully. He said, part of the reason I wanted to study the book of Lamentations is that I have a sinking suspicion we're in the midst of an unraveling of our own culture. And some of you may be able to think back to a time when things were different. And without getting into all the details of how different they were, the fact of the matter is that things are different now than they were 50 or 60 years ago. You know, Jeremiah could have said the same thing by comparison. Think about his life. Think about Josiah to Zedekiah. Think about it. Mark said it like this. He said, we were always a sinful people, but now it's different. What I want to help you realize is that the normal lot for Christians throughout church history has been hardship. We've not normally been the majority people in a culture. And for this time that we have had a Jewish and Christian ethic leading to the civilization that we enjoy, and it's been a part of American cultural experience, 
understand how unusual that is and how fleeting it can be. And figure out how to live in a culture that without another great awakening is on the downhill side of that. You can sense it palpably as a discerning Christian. I know you can. And what Mark said is, I find believers who don't have words beyond anger and fear are grappling and trying to hold on at the seams as Christianity becomes uncoupled from the culture in which they live. And it comes apart at the seams. And we don't know how to act. We don't know how to live. That's what this sermon is about for me, is having that conversation, really starting it. You can't finish it today. But starting that conversation, evoking that conversation. Things are different now. They're not what they were. I mean, by comparison, if we were to kind of take back the last 50 to 70 years, like Jeremiah might have, you might say, at least the public displays of this unraveling, when divorce no longer had faults, when it was just commonplace, so that men could do what they wanted to do. When the murdering of unborn children wantonly in the 70s became common, so women could just do what they wanted to do. Lament causes you to have to wake up and grieve these losses. Like, marriage, divorce is the death of the smallest unit of civilization. Murdering 60-something million of our own children that we can count is genocide. If we can't wake up and see that, we're, we're, we're no better off than the people in Jeremiah's time. That's exactly what we're heading for, is absolute destruction. There's no putting a pin in it. And so what the problem becomes in the midst of all of this is, is that we need to wake up and to refocus and know how we live when we sense that this thing's going. I mean, it's not just now, it's moved on. It's not, it's not just... It's not just a sexual revolution that's anti-nuclear family and anti-home. It's a redefinition of marriage. It's the acceptance of wanton immorality in the highest levels of public office. And now we, we can't even define gender for what it is. We're losing our ability to, to make truth claims as a culture. And we as a people know we can't, we can't not speak truthfully. We can't not have an ability to speak with integrity about what truth is. But we know that the, the rub with all this is, is then how do I interact in economy? And how do I interact in, in, my, in my street? And, and what does it mean? And, you know, at the high level, the highest level is we remember who our ultimate ruler is, right? I mean, that's the highest level. But in the, in the everyday, it's just frankly very, very easy to, to live based on fear and blame and to either just be fatalistic, well, it's going to happen, or to sort of grab onto the vestiges of something without just reading the signs. You need to understand that a large group within the culture in which you live doesn't believe the things that I'm preaching right here. They don't just not believe it. It's not even socially needed for them to pretend like they believe it anymore. I mean, you are a dinosaur if you believe in traditional marriage, that God made man and woman and expected man and woman to get married, stay married, and procreate. If that's your paradigm for life... And you know that when that doesn't work out, that something bad has happened. If that's you, you need to understand. We are in the minority with that. And we generationally in world history as Christians have been in the minority as Christians. And we've had a respite from it in this blessed country where we were found, our founding principles 
were on the concepts that the, the individual responsibility mattered and the family mattered. And if that starts to unravel, you need to get some kind of language and category, not just for fatalism and not just for blame, but for how to live faithfully and somewhat winsomely in the midst of telling the truth to a culture gone absolutely mad. And I'm going to tell you, the, first, the way you got to do that is you got to focus at home. You have got to focus at home. It's pivotal. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. We trust in the Lord our God, which means that before you try to shout anything to the princes, you better whisper gospel things to your children. First point is to hear the word yourself, to have your own idols of gold and purple revealed. First, to, to hear the word before you speak it. But then secondly, you do need to speak the word. Look at verses 5 through 9. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. This is royalty, now they're in garbage dumps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. You know what happened to Sodom? In a moment, they were destroyed. And so this text is saying it, it's actually, in the short run, better to die at the sword than it is to die of starvation. I mean, God is allowing, he said, you don't want me as a part of your civilization? Try it. Babylon comes in and just wallops them. There's no Assyria and there's no Egypt to save them. It says Sodom, verse 6, was overthrown in a moment. No hands were wrung for her. See where a lot of our language is coming from, right? Don't you see? Or a lot, there's like five different phrases in this passage that's common English. Have you noticed that? No hand wringing. You heard that one before? There's other ones in here, too. They're worth their weight in fine gold, verse 2. I wanted to make a point with that here this morning. We can't live off the leftovers of Christianity for a whole lot longer. We're going to have to have a rediscovery of these phrases and where they come from. Like, we can't just live off the vestiges of yesteryear. We have to live that faith. And it has to be so inculcated into our homes that it spills over and then we speak the truth to the influencers in our world. And then we do speak. In that way, we're like Jeremiah with a prophetic function because we have the prophetic word more sure. With Christ in us and with the canon now complete, we have a prophetic function in our world where we speak the truth. We don't forever hedge our bets and count the cost. Sometimes we say what's true. We just say it. Lest we think that all the influencers are out there and the influence that are, influencers that are out there are all responsible for what's going on, consider Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30 and 31. Keep your finger right there where you are. We're going to go right back to Lamentations 4, 6. But this is what, this lengthy book of Jeremiah has all these just treasure nuggets for the time in which we live. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30, says this. It's, a, it's, a, it's really a hard truth, but it's, it's, a, it's a true truth. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. So see, there were prophets, but they weren't true prophets. And the priests rule at their direction or authority. So that they're priests, but they're not faithful. And it says, this is the tough one. My people love to have it so. See, we don't yet live in what will you do when the end comes, but we live in the my people love to have it so. We love to have prophet and priestly figures tickle our ears. Peace and safety, peace and safety, when there's no peace and safety. 
And it says here then, but what will you do when the end comes? Well, that's lamentations. That's the epilogue. What are you going to do when the end comes? So we need to find our voice now. We can't love to have false prophets and false priests and false kings. Stephen Smith writes in his commentary on this text, and he says that, generally speaking, in Israel's history over the 500 years between King David and the absolute fall of Judah in 586 B.C., generally speaking, a king could correct a prophet, a prophet could certainly correct a king, and a priest could speak to the prophets and the kings, and they had a kind of a sense, it wasn't perfect, but they had a kind of sense of God would use them to redirect one another in leadership and to get back to it. But at this point, Jeremiah is the out-of-step prophet. He's the unlistened-to priest. The priests that are being listened to are bad in terms of corrupt. The prophets are corrupt. They're not speaking the true words of the Lord. And the kings aren't following the true words of the Lord. And they're imprisoning people like Jeremiah. And the whole shooting match is corrupt top to tail. Whole thing. And so that's what has happened to lead to God's judgment on Israel. Pray that some piece of leadership puzzle in all of it Somehow that God would see fit to just wake us up and for us to be sensitive to his word as it's meted out through true mouthpieces of the gospel. It is so much more important because it's so much more important than everything else because here's the thing. God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And if we are like the people living in the time of Jeremiah, thinking peace and safety, it's going to be fine. We are the ones delivered. While we live like children of the enemy, we will reap what we sow. And blessings do not follow cursed living. Speak the word. The drift is easy. It's it's easy for those that minister to you. The Bible says here the elders fell out of favor with the Lord in Lamentations 4 toward the end. It's easy for those that minister to you. To, to jump on the success bandwagon and to forget about people like, frankly, like Job, Jesus, and Jeremiah. Just think of those J's. I mean, Jesus was faithful. People left him and they killed him on a cross. His conquest was not how to win friends and influence people. Think about Job. Job was faithful. Satan sifted him. The Lord said to him, you don't really understand what's going on with the Odyssey. Where were you when I made the foundations of the, of the world? Job was left to say, I don't get it, but blessed be the name of the Lord. You give and take away. Jeremiah, the longest book of the Bible, is spent with him saying, it had been better if I hadn't been born. My life is terrible. It's not even the days of Josiah anymore. He died in battle. I'm living in the slow fade of my civilization, and they're not listening to me. And, I mean, it'd just be better if I wasn't even alive. And then he comes out of that, and he preaches some more. That's the land in which he lives. But the, the, the tendency for prophets, priests, and kings, for that matter, but the tendency for elders, the tendency is to do just what it takes to make budget, just what it takes to get people to be involved. That's, that's the tendency. And the witness of the prophets evade us. And I need your help that I won't do that. I've done it in the past, and the tendency will be to do it again. You do not need an ear tickler. You need somebody that will say, thus saith the Lord. Perfectly? No, this is not a perfect example. But perfectly the Word of God, because the Word of God is perfect to you, trying to get it into your heads and hearts, that's what you need. You need it if the Lord takes me home tonight. You need it next Sunday. And I need to face Jesus knowing that that's what I did. I need your help to do that. You need to be able to speak the word 
with integrity and humility out there. And it starts in your home, but it doesn't stay there. Don't make an idol out of your ministry, but do embrace ministry. Because it's, uh, this passage in Jeremiah, just, it just rips me. The people loved it that way. Let us not be those people. Lamentations chapter 4 again. It says they'd rather been Sodom, verse 7. Her princes were pure than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were like coral. So the beautiful princes, now verse 8, the comparison, see? We learn by comparison. Their faces black like soot. They're, they're shriveled up to the bones. There's no food. It's a famine. There's been two years under siege. So that can never happen, they said. This could never happen to us. Rebel against long, God long enough, generationally enough, and hard enough, and see if things like that don't happen to your civilization. When we rebel against God, civilizations crumble. They do it from the inside out. We can't live off table scraps forever. We need always and forever to return to the fount of every blessing, to return and stay connected to the vine, and that is Jesus Christ. It says in verse 9, Happy are the victims of the sword and those that wasted away. This thing lingered for 70 years. It didn't linger indefinitely, but it lingered for 70 years. God's people never forgot the exile. They never forgot it. They never forgot it. It, it left an indelible mark on the Jewish people. They never forgot the exile. And we would do well to not forget it either. These poems are inculcated in the Jewish calendar. The children learn the alphabet, Aleph to Ta, by reading the headers at each one of these verses. The lament is there for a purpose. It's to help us learn how to never get into that situation, to help us learn how to lament when we are in that situation, and to help us pray to the good Lord that that situation does not endure very long. Health depends on leadership. The prophets and the priests and the kings, they had a, a thorough corruptness about them. They had abandoned the word of the Lord that was revived under King Josiah. And we must speak to them all. You don't need to necessarily aspire to be a church elder, although some of you should. But you don't need to aspire to it to benefit from taking a class we're going to offer starting September 13th on church elders, to understand what a faithful elder is supposed to be. It's a little bitty brown book titled Church Elders, and Pastor Kurt is going to do a Sunday afternoon study on it beginning September 13th. And I hope that as part of this second point, learning to speak the word well to people that have influence, I hope that you'll consider studying that with him. We have an entire church leadership curriculum that we've written where we go through nine books and we read the Bible together and we study to understand what it means to lead well, to influence well in this time, in this culture. And we need to pray that God would send us faithful figures of influencers and leadership. And I need you to join me in that prayer and to pray that we would be so as well. Third and final point is to live the word. I left off in verse 9. I want you to look at verses 11 through 13 now. It says, The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled out his hot anger. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. 500 years had passed, and it had been impenetrable for the most part. And it says here, verse 13, what this was for. Not exclusively for the sins of the leaders, but particularly for the sins of the leaders. It says here, this was because this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. You see what has happened. Everything rises and falls with leadership. And leadership has fallen. It has fallen. It says they shed in the midst 
of her the blood of the righteous. They were unjust. They killed the little ones. They sacrificed them to Baal. They murdered their babies. Parallel is easy to make. When we look at these verses, we realize how important it is that we be the leader that we want to see. And that we live the word even in the midst of a culture that's gone mad. Verse 14 says that these figures finally got their comeuppance. And all do. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. These pure figures are filthy. The outward finally showed what was inside. Verse 15, they say, Away, unclean, people cried at them. This is what they'd done to others. They were merciless. They became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, They're not going to stay with us. Let them in. Keep them people away from me, just as they'd done to the people. Verse 16, the Lord himself scattered them. He used Babylon. It, boy, tough passage. God scattered them. He regards those priests and prophets no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Verse 17 returns to considering how the people live the word in the midst of this lament. And that's our third point today. We've talked about hearing the word and speaking the word. We finally want to just button it up with live the word. And it says in verse 17, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save. They wanted Egypt to come and help them. Didn't do it. Couldn't do it. Edom conspired with Babylon to kill them, and that's why these last verses read the way they do. Verse 18, Our enemies, they dogged our steps so we couldn't walk in our streets. Talk about security being totally gone now. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The Lord, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed was captured in their pits. So Zedekiah, he was captured. They killed his family systematically in front of him. Then they gouged his eyes out and hauled him off to Babylon. So the last thing he remembered seeing was the death of his own children. That's what they did to him. How in the world? How could God, how could he do that? Does those questions not come up now? How in the world could he do that? The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in the pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. So King Zedekiah, there's no, no, no place to hide. And King Zedekiah is what's being intimated there in verse 20. The punishment is complete from A to Z, all of it. Lord, how could he do it? How could he let it happen through Babylon? I mean, what could they possibly have done bad? I mean, sure they killed some of their babies, but was that this bad? I mean, sure their worship was not always very attuned, and sometimes even it was syncretistic and it was pluralistic, but was that really so bad? I mean, in a nutshell, we might say it this way. Is our sin really so bad? One of the great things that you can take from Lamentations is that it should happen to you too. It's one of the great things you can take from Lamentations. You, that it should happen to you too. I love what one pastor says. He says, brokenness that leads to God is not wasted. Brokenness that leads to God is not wasted. 
it should happen to us too. The fact that we're able to sit and hear the word this morning and have an opportunity to respond to it without sitting in an ash heap for lunch is grace upon grace. It's mercy. And so I just don't know about, I don't know about following and putting my faith in a God that operates like that. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to urge you to become a believer, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because he doesn't just say, your sin's so bad, I'm going to turn you into an ash heap. He knows in the fabric of the rebellion of humanity that sin is so bad that it must be uncovered and atoned for. See, here's the thing. The sins of us had to be atoned for, and that's the reason why the true and better prophet, the completely faithful priest, and the totally reliable king, Jesus Christ himself, fulfilled that threefold office when he came to earth for us. And he made atonement for us. God is so serious about rewarding faithfulness and punishing sin that he chose to put it on display on the cross where he could reach out as wide as he could with his hands on, those cross, on the cross to all of humanity and yet get us as far as we needed to get upwards and onwards toward heaven to our Lord. You see, Jesus screams to us that our sins are serious enough to reward us lamentations. And yet, our reward is beautiful enough that in Jesus, he took on your sin. So that as your sins are uncovered, they're already atoned for in Christ's blood. Listen to the, the words of the last two verses of this text. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Zion. Your iniquity, I'm sorry, rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Zion, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. So Jerusalem, there's an end to your punishment, as bad as it is. He won't keep you in exile any longer. But your iniquity, daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. See, the Edomites, their sins had yet to be uncovered. They hadn't yet reaped what they'd sown. And so this is actually a, a warning to the Edomites, the blood kinfolk of the Jewish people, that their sins would be uncovered. I just want you to know this morning that sin is such a big deal. It is the biggest problem in this world. It is the result of all bad things that God has to deal with it. He'll deal with it justly in the final judgment, but he dealt with it for you as a believer on the cross. He put all that punishment for sin on Jesus Christ, his blood sacrifice for you. And so you must receive him to get there. The way I want to conclude this sermon this morning about hearing the word and speaking the word and, and living the word is I want to take you to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Because I said I wanted today to initiate a conversation about how we live on the back side of the curve if the Lord doesn't give us another awakening, which we listen for and we speak about. How do we live when it seems like we're on the downhill slide? Now, I want you to hear where Peter wrote to God's people as exiles and strangers. And I want you to hear how he talked about these, these precious living stones. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and we'll conclude. So put away all malice and all deceit, all, I'm sorry, all hypocrisy and deceit and envy and all slander. Put all that stuff away. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, 
believers, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you stand with me and bow your heads as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, as we have compared Jeremiah's life to Jerusalem's destruction, we compare lamentations to where we are today as Christians living where we live. Lord, help us to learn from the long book of Jeremiah and not to have to face the short book of Lamentations. And Lord, when we do suffer, may it be not because of sins we've committed directly, but may it be suffering to fill up the afflictions of Christ. And may we face it without bitterness and without fatalism, but with joy as the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the saints. Help us, O Lord, to look to our greater prophet, priest, and king as we try to live as priests and speak prophetically, even to kings in our land. Lord, we trust in you and not in ourselves, even as we sing praise to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.